and daily transmission and death counts are plateauing across the country at just over 40,000 cases per week and just under 1,000 deaths per day. Under pressure from Trump's White House, the CDC recommended against testing people who had been exposed but did not have symptoms, even though a new test is coming on board that is cheaper, faster, and easier to manufacture. Scientists confirm that it is possible to get COVID-19 twice, with important implications for how we think about immunity. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. This week in America, a black man was shot seven times in the back by police officers who were supposed to protect us. One of the strongest hurricanes ever to make landfall barreled through Louisiana, and wildfires are burning California. Meanwhile, COVID-19 claimed its 180,000th victim. Oh, and there was this. If Joe Biden doesn't have the strength to stand up to wild-eyed Marxists, then how is he ever going to stand up for you? He's not. It's tempting to pretend like these aren't all connected, like our divisive politics, the whole-scale denial of science by the party holding the most power in our political system, or the ineptitude of this country's president hasn't driven our national failure to take on this pandemic, to lead on climate change, and to pull us together rather than break us apart. What COVID-19 is reminding us is that leadership matters, but it's hard to understand exactly how, when for most of us, we've only really experienced COVID-19 in one country, this one. As the U.S. was setting daily case transmission records this summer, New Zealand recorded 109 days without any cases. And after that, when there was an outbreak in Auckland, they moved swiftly to curtail spread through lockdowns. Meanwhile, in Germany, cases were in the hundreds, and in Senegal, cases were in the dozens. Today, we wanted to dig deeper into what experiencing this pandemic may be like in countries with functional political leadership. First, we checked in with Dr. Jessica Romine, a veterinarian who just moved from Detroit to New Zealand, about what her experience was like there versus here in America, and what might explain that difference. According to a new report from Foreign Policy Analytics, New Zealand is home to the world's best COVID-19 response. We were number 31. We'll speak with the authors to understand why. First, here's Jessica. We're really lucky to be joined by someone who has first-hand experience with uh, COVID-19 now in two countries. Uh, Jessica Romine is a native of D.C., just recently moved from Michigan, where she lived, to uh, New Zealand. And she just got out of her mandatory quarantine today. So, uh, Jessica, congratulations on your freedom. Thank you. It feels great. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you just moved to, to New Zealand and... You know, before that, you were in the United States. T tell me about just your experience with COVID-19 in America. Yeah, so I lived in Detroit, like the actual Detroit city. So mm -hmm. um, we were one of the, as you know, earliest hit and one of the hardest hit cities. Um, and the particular area of Detroit that I was in was definitely hit aggressively as well. I lived right across the street from a nursing home that was one of the mm. worst affected so I saw the ambulances coming multiple times a day and so on. Um, so I sort of got to experience the sort of the worst that Michigan ex dealt with. And um, I am an essential worker. I'm a veterinarian at a, a specialty and emergency practice. So we never closed. We're considered an essential service. So I also got to deal with the sort of navigating of uh, the workplace and trying to adjust to the rapidly changing 
rules and protocols there. Um, so I haven't been doing any work from home. When my fiance mm -hmm. was stuck with me because he was supposed to be traveling internationally for work and that all got canceled, he was working from home and I was going back and forth every day. Hmm. And, um, and now you're in New Zealand. Tell me what it's like. I mean, you, you schedule your flight and what do they tell you about what you're, what you should expect when you get on the ground? Yeah. So even the scheduling of the flight, um, is very highly regulated because they're very on top of every single person coming in, uh, being an Island nation, they actually really can be really aggressive with their border monitoring. So even the booking of the flight, I had the dates that I was planning on going, I was importing my cat. So I had her plans of when she was supposed to be heading to her own quarantine. And they actually put a hold on anyone booking because they were getting too backed up at the quarantine hotels. So even mm. though I had a plan to be leaving my job and getting on a plane, I couldn't actually book the ticket until less than a week before I left because there was that uncertainty about if I would actually get approved to go. I think I got wow. my official final New Zealand stamp of approval like two days before I was supposed to be getting on the plane. Wow. And so you get on the plane and, and uh, you've got this absurdly long flight. I assume you had a layover. Yep. Yep. Was in LA and the international tour, uh, terminal at LA is almost completely shut down. So hmm. it's not a thrilling place to be wandering around, but um, the, I, literally the only thing open was a PF Chang's and like one newsstand. I don't know why PF Chang's seemed to be the approved restaurant, but everything else in the entire terminal was closed. So it was just a lot of people wearing masks, wandering around with their, their carry-on luggage. Wow. And then you, you get to New Zealand, then what happens? Yeah. So uh, on the flight, masks were mandatory even while you're sleeping. So it's about a 13 or so hour flight, um, which is already rough, but made worse by the mask, except you have to wear the mask because you're on a plane and that's fine. Most people were really good about it. The attendants were um, very vigilant about telling people um, when they needed to put the mask back on when they were done eating and so on. They set people off the plane in groups of about 10 or so, so they don't overwhelm. They're not people waiting in really long lines. Uh, I got in at like six in the morning, so um, it wasn't very crowded, I, but I don't think it's very crowded in general there right now because it's so limited. Um, and they immediately check your temperature. They look to see which hotel group you're supposed to be going through so that they can send you to the right spot. You get handed lots of different forms with your temperature and which bus you're supposed to be going on and so on. You go through the normal customs. You still have to declare anything mm -hmm. um, and so on. And then you're stopped again. You have to show all the stuff you've done. And then they put you on the appropriate bus because you you are not, you're, you're going straight to the quarantine hotels. You are not stopping anywhere along the way. It's all mm. coordinated buses. It's not like you're getting an Uber to go anywhere. Um, so no contact with the outside world. Some, some people had to get off of this flight, go through all of that, and then immediately get on a bus to drive like three and a half hours because they're headed to further out in the, in the country. So I, I do not envy someone getting off of a trans-Pacific flight and then immediately onto a tour bus for three yeah. hours. Um, I, my hotel was in Auckland, so you get put straight on there. And even when you get to the hotel, they have barriers up that they actually open up and connect 
to the side of the, the van for you to get off so that oh, there's wow. no risk of people escaping. Cause they were, hmm. I don't think anyone at, the, at that particular joint um, of the chain tried to escape, but they were having people breaking out of quarantine. So they wow. are very strict about it. So, and then you get to go to this hotel for 14 days. 14 days. Um, every single person going in has to go to a hotel. They're using hotels because they have private bathrooms so that they mm-hmm, can limit mm-hmm. isolation. Um, otherwise, I think if that weren't an issue, they'd probably be u- utilizing dormitories or something more economical. I believe that New Zealand citizens and permanent residents, the government is paying for the the hotel stay. Anyone like myself who's coming in as a non-resident you or your company, however you're getting there, the reason why you're getting there has to pay for it. Um, wow. And when you're in the hotel, I assume you're not like enjoying the pool and, you know, hanging out. Uh, you're stuck in your room. You are. You are. Um, I think this, the location of each hotel dictates what things you have available. Um, some of them have a little green area that you can go out. We had a one designated walk area that you had to sign up for because they had only limited people and everyone of course had to socially distance and not talk to anybody that wasn't in their bubble, um, that you were allowed out for a half hour a day. Um, hmm. Sometimes we had access to converted hotel rooms that had a single piece of a gym equipment in it again for a half hour because then they had to disinfect it for like three hours before anyone else could use it. And other wow. than that, you're in and your room. <laughs> so what did you do in your room? Uh, well, um, because my main continuing education opportunity is the big internal veterinary internal medicine conference that's normally in June and it was put online just like every conference was put online. Mm -hmm. So I cranked out 39 hours of online CE, (laughs) just getting it done. So I did that a lot. This is like the nerdy version of Netflix. Oh, this is Vetflix. Yeah. I mean, this is what we're going to call Vetflix. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And just like the <laughs> absolute dorkiest topics that I was like, this is such an interesting topic of calcium oxalate stones in cats and so on. But um, I did a lot of crosswords. Um, it became a routine that when my fiance would call to touch base with me at the end of the day, mostly it was just me trying to get him to help me finish the crossword that I was stuck on and trying ah, to get him nice. to figure out clues for me. Um, I had an adult coloring book that I was gifted. (laughs) Just, I tried to only watch TV after 5 PM because otherwise you just sit and watch TV constantly. But I certainly did that afterwards. Hours. Yeah. There was a construction happening across the street that I watched them pour a concrete floor. So literally (laughs) not quite paint dry, but close, close to paint drying. (laughs) So the quarantine concrete and the vet flicks, that's what got you, uh, got you through it. Yeah. So, you know, all of this, uh, demonstrates just a very different attitude, um, to COVID-19 in New Zealand versus in the U S. Um, now you're, you're out in Auckland. I know you haven't had very much time to, um, to roam around, but, I know that they've had a recent set of outbreaks and, and now um, they're back in lockdown. Mm-hmm. How does that feel versus um, your time in Detroit in the United States? So yes, limited direct experience, although even just the sort of attitude of the public service announcement, everything is, it's different than it, than I was seeing in the United States. Immediately on the TVs, as soon as they started, they had the ads of, we're all in this together. A lot of them said, like, we've done it before. We can do it again. Um, 
with the reminders of different mm. things to do. And even uh, there's sort of a, a large focus on community effort and sort of pride in being able to control mm. this outbreak. Um, even the ads for like the local supermarkets and so on said they rolled out. And I'm sure they had had these pre-recorded saying our supply chains are strong. Don't take more than you need because, you know, we're a community and don't worry about food supply things. Um, so the general attitude is seems to be a lot more we're going to get through it. And, and they rapidly amped up their response. They went into full lockdown because one family of four people had COVID. Um and mm -hmm. they did get sort of as expected to spread out. But I believe the count yesterday was five new cases. And they tested 23,000 mm. people on Tuesday um, to get those results. So wow. their proportionality of testing is completely different once they had the outbreak. They had been stockpiling and stockpiling because they knew it was going to get through eventually. You know, they knew there was going to be some sort of outbreak again. Mm -hmm. So I believe the lockdown is supposed to be ending next week. And so far... I think they're on track to do it because they haven't seen a spread beyond this initial cluster, really. Hmm. So a real investment in public health goods and services, a communal approach and a communal pride in the ability to take this thing on and a serious response even to the smallest number of cases. And that's what the experience for you has been in New Zealand. Yeah, and and it seems like there there's definitely a lot of sort of support and concern for people. They had uh, they had welfare checks for every person who was in managed isolation, other than just the daily temperature check. You got tested twice. Mm -hmm. They asked if you were symptoms, but the health ministry called me to check on my mental welfare and make sure I didn't need food, mm. accommodation, support of any kind. They asked if I would like my next sort of welfare check the next day, in two days, or in a week. So they were sort of monitoring wow. how people were holding up in isolation. Um, so there seemed to be a lot more awareness that it's not just are you febrile or not? How is this impacting you elsewhere? And how else can we support you so that you don't have to take unnecessary risks? Wow. I mean, it's just such a contrast to our approach in the United States. Um We'll be talking uh, later on in the episode to two reporters who did a international comparison for foreign policy on the pandemic. And of course, uh, New Zealand was the best rated, the best response. And the United States is somewhere near the bottom. Um, and it's fascinating, you know, that so much of what you're talking about, these are obvious things. Quarantine is an obvious thing. Uh, checking in on your mental health when you're in quarantine is an obvious thing. Um, you know, going into lockdown because there are cases that could be spreading, obvious. Um, and so much more of what is what seems to to come out of your conversation is really just an attitude about wanting to do it and about being willing to do it and about doing it collectively and about helping people through it. That really is such a different attitude than what we're seeing, of course, here, where everything has been politicized. So there's a different side to every story. Yeah. Um, and it's really helpful to, to understand how that feels. Um, we're wishing you well. Uh, and, um, you know, normally I ask the question of how are you spending your days, but I just learned that you spent your days watching Vetflix and, um, and, and watching concrete get poured. <laughs> um, but we wish you well in New Zealand and, uh, and we hope that, uh, that you stay safe down there because frankly, you probably have a better shot at doing it than we do here in the United States. So there's that. <laughs> 
here's hoping I got plenty of family and friends on the on the state side that I'm still watching and wishing well for everyone there too. It's my country. We got to get it together. We do. We do. Well, we really appreciate you sharing your experience. I think it's so helpful for folks to understand how it feels to do this right. Um, not just, you know, what the policies look like on paper. So thank you for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. We'll speak with Allison Carlson and Fouad Pervez of Foreign Policy Analytics on their new COVID-19 Global Response Index after the break. Two of our guests today are Allison Carlson and Fouad Pervez. They are the lead authors of a new study, the COVID-19 Global Response Index, uh, through FP Analytics, which is the research uh, arm of Foreign Policy Magazine. Thank you all for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having us. Thanks. So... This is a really interesting, uh, you know, zoomed out look, um, a truly global look at a truly global pandemic. Um, can can you tell us why you set out to uh, to do this, to take this global eye view uh, of this pandemic and what you felt like it could teach us um, about how to take this on? Sure, I can jump in. Um, so when we took this up, there was a lot of reporting that was being done about how individual countries were responding to and managing the crisis. But to date, there hadn't been a systematically systematic effort to track government responses across distinct categories. And what we endeavored to do here is to just to develop a framework that was really data-driven at its core that would allow us to more clearly understand and compare government responses and track their responses and outcomes over time. You know, one of our primary goals was to track and isolate specific actions that were being taken by governments, but also through that process to really identify promising practices to inform ongoing responses. Mm. And the, um, let me chime in also, the um, the Foreign Policy Analytics COVID-19 Global Index, um, we think that it does something that other COVID-19 trackers do not. And there's a lot of them out there and everyone's uh, making a really great contribution. Um, On our end, we think that what we're doing is we're gathering a variety of key factors, uh, which we based on, you know, very careful theoretical considerations. And what we're doing with that is we're trying to take a broader look at how countries have done with respect to COVID-19. So we're not looking at sync like any one factor or two factors. I mean, we have... 14 different factors for our overall policy score, and that gets spread across three different categories. We have three different factors for our um, in-country COVID-19 status score, and we do an age adjustment within there. And then we have six more that we look at to deal with something like COVID-19. So you broadly categorize the the, the metrics that you uh, analyzed on three three key frames. The, The first is uh, public health response. The second is economic response, and the third is fact-based communication. You know, you, you started with these fourteen metrics that you uh, used to rate a country. Um, how did you uh, come to categorize them that way? And and what does that tell us about uh, broadly um, how important these aspects are, and and also how they interact to uh, create uh, a a strong or weak um, in-country COVID nineteen response. Sure. Let me uh, let me start off. So, you know, there, there are any number of different approaches that anyone could take when you're looking at this. And for us, these three categories we thought were distinct, but um, we thought were highly impactful on how countries managing the crisis overall. So the, the first one, I'll start off with, uh, we'll talk about public health directives. And 
for us, you know, the, the public health angle made obvious sense. You clearly and absolutely need to address a public health crisis with public health policy. So it was really critical to evaluate um, what different uh, country leaders were doing with respect to shutdowns, closures, emergency healthcare spending, and also importantly, when they did it. Mm. And secondly, if I can chime in here on the financial response, we thought that was also really important and distinct from the public health care directives um, about ways in which governments were providing financial support to the population, to workers throughout the crisis so that they could implement public health care policy um, and be clear about doing so. Um, and the ability to provide support by way of stimulus packages, income support, and debt forbearance, for example, or assistance with bills, as it were, um, would not only allow people to continue to um, manage financially throughout the crisis, but also affect the, the pressure to open up. And so the degree to which countries have mm -hmm. been able to provide financial support would enable people to work longer at home and to have that, that cushion longer. Mm. So one of the things that, you know, I, I've been, I've been thinking about COVID-19 for some time, obviously, as all of us have been. And uh, one of the arguments that we've, we've been developing here is in, in really, frankly, uh, watching play out in the worst ways uh, in the U.S. is that. If you are going to tell people to do something to protect their public health, you have to buy them out of the implicit decision not to. And so we had, you know, these these massive lockdowns in uh, the the U.S. And those of us who are privileged enough to be able to do our work behind a Zoom screen uh, were able to continue working. But that meant that lowest income people who were um, structurally most likely to to get hit hardest um, were left choosing between a life and a livelihood. Um, you, you capture that quite well. And then the third piece is that you've got to continue to have a conversation with the people about why we're doing what we're doing and what it means for them. Um, what was interesting to me is that this approach uh, tends to, or it looks like based on, on, on what you found in terms of your country rankings, um, was able to sidestep a problem with a lot of these studies, which basically uh, argues that everything boils down to how much money you have to, to take on a big problem like this. Because, you know, New Zealand predictably um, ranked number one in terms of national response. But number two, surprisingly, was Senegal. Um, you're talking about a lower income country uh, in a region uh, that was hard hit by the last major uh, epidemic, which was Ebola. But, uh, you know, it's not a rich country, um, but, but they were able to do this really quite well. Can, can you speak to that case study of Senegal uh, and what it tells us about how a country can use scarce resources uh, to take on a pandemic like COVID-19? Sure. Um, and let me just uh, take one step back and, and uh, add one little point, and this feeds directly into part of what Senegal's success has been. So the third thing that we look at in this speaks exactly what you were just uh, talking about those the, um, the the communications we tried to measure political communications as well and that's something that um, hasn't been done by most people it's it's we're emphasizing the importance of political leadership and clear public communications in the crisis um, and we tried to do it in a systematic way uh, for exactly the reasons that you're talking about like we need clear communications and directives from key leaders um, and, you know, for us, the index was not intended to be political, but rather like we've been talking about systematically identifying and highlighting ways in which country leaders were communicating with the public 
and whether those leaders were relying on um, facts, science-based information, uh, or whether they were contributing to the spread of misinformation and conspiracy theories and understanding that the communication is going to have an impact on human behavior. Um, and if we're talking about Senegal, for instance, um, uh, you know, Senegal scored extremely high. And they were consistently very, very strong in all the categories, right? They had a strong and early restrictions on public interactions. They had a, a generous debt forbearance policy, and they had leaders who relied on facts and did not restrict restrict the press in terms of how they are covering the policies that they are implementing as a country. Um, mm -hmm. They had a history with HIV and Ebola, um, and that almost certainly helped them. You know, they had they have a centralized decision making center. They had dedicated staff, and they began the preparations for COVID nineteen very, very early in the pandemic. They made the commitment beforehand, and that's that's also why their in country status is quite good. Despite, as you noted, um, they don't have great capacity. They're not thought of as a rich country, and that bears out in our pre COVID capacity score. They didn't do particularly well, and so the 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 thing that fills in right there is that they had very strong policies. Mm. And one other thing on that, if I can add to, is not only did they have strong policies, but they were willing to spend and provide social safety nets. They have a strong social safety net framework to begin with. But Senegal spent about 7% of GDP, which is significantly more than other countries in the region and other countries globally responding to the crisis. And they did so quickly. And the ways in which they did that mattered in terms of providing income support, food assistance, electricity payments for family, and expanding the social safety net that existed that was originally applying to about 300,000 households to a million. And that rapid response and being able to provide that sort of support really mattered. Hmm. That's, I mean, that is, uh, that's profound, right? Because one of the countries that rather predictably doesn't do very well um, on the index is the United States. And, you know, we are the richest, most powerful country in the world. And yet our, our legislature couldn't come together to renew what were ultimately really quite limited um, investments in people's economic well-being, uh, even uh, as the the policy response to COVID nineteen has been has been limited, can you talk to us about what uh, what were the real issues with the United States response as you saw them relative to other countries in the world and and why we ranked so low? Sure, um, I mean for the United States, uh, it it was consistently below you know the median in every category, um, the public health response, the financial response and the political commu communications and reliance on facts. So one thing I would note is it's hard to pinpoint any single thing for that reason. Um, mm -hmm. and, and to be clear, you know, the United States actually had components in all the categories in which it did quite well. So for instance, on the political communication side, um, the U.S. has not really restricted the press in terms of how they cover COVID-19, right? The, mm -hmm. the COVID-19 stimulus, the number is fairly high. Um, but really, for us, I think the thing, what we think about the strength of our index is the number of measures. So it's a single good or bad data point is likely not going to be enough to skew a country's score to, a, to a, a serious degree. So it's pretty consistent across the board. Uh, even in cases when the United States implemented strong policies, it often implemented them late. Uh, and, and for us, you know, in the index, we penalize late implementers in terms of policies. So. Mm -hmm. 
America's and America's lowest score amongst all the categories was in the fact-based communications, um, <laughs> political communications, but the public health score was not a whole lot better. And this is sort of likely reflected in the other scores in our index outside of our policy scores. And as you noted, despite having what, you know, what I would call above average capacity before COVID-19 hit, I mean, the United States is amongst the worst case, has amongst the worst case and death rates in the world. And this gap is likely driven by these low scores across all the three different policy categories. Now, this is, you know, to, to any of us living here, this is not surprising. Um, but, you know, one of the, one of the most fascinating things we, we talked to, um, Jessica Romine, who, uh, just happened to have moved to New Zealand just now, just got out of her quarantine. And, you know, we talk about policies on the ground, but one of the things that she highlights is that um, there is a culture about taking on COVID-19 that is a collective culture. We're all into this together. Um, and that's been modeled at the very top. And you, you think about that culture relative to the culture of COVID-19 in America, where it feels like it's every person for themselves where our president is actively trying to politicize this pandemic um, and policy leadership from the federal government has been uh, all but missing. Um, I, I wonder what that tells us about the ways that different leaders have taken this on. Um, is there a pattern that your research showed about what kinds of leaders did well and, and which didn't and how that you know public political communication changed culture that enabled political leaders to enact strong, swift public health policies and to back it up with strong economic policies? I mean, one thing is that clear, honest communication and consistent communication really matters, as well as that which is fact-based. And you know what we've seen is in the third category of the index, those countries that engaged in misinformation the spread of misinformation are also among the lowest scoring and have among the highest case and death rates. And so that type of consistent public and fact-based communication is absolutely key in response. And that trust that has been established among the leadership and among the populace in terms of the ways in which people are listening to leaders and taking this seriously and recognizing it is a real threat to public health and a threat to the economy. One claim that, you know, we've, I think has been made in the popular press um, and leaders in different places was this idea that um, authoritarian regimes are gonna be able to handle this crisis better than democracies. Uh, when you actually look at our data, uh, needless to say, it doesn't suggest that to be the case. So, you know, I think, so on the, the contrast side to what you're asking about. So autocratic leaders, they might be better able to enforce lockdowns, but they're also prone to countless other actions that are likely going to harm their populations with respect to COVID-19, um, which includes, as Allison was talking about, uh, promoting false information, limiting their press's ability to cover them critically, uh, and sometimes caring more about the optics than actual results. And you know, a clear example might be, for instance, um, in the early days of the crisis, the lengths to which China went to sort of deny the seriousness of it, um, which could have been better spent trying to stop its spread. And as it stands, like, let's be clear, many journalists and researchers have noted 
the questionable nature of death and case rates in some of these countries, and most notably China and Russia, for instance. But even with those reported rates in our data, uh, they still score pretty poorly in our index. So it's to say that um, I, we don't think it's the case that authoritarian regimes or semi-autocratic regimes are necessarily better equipped to handle COVID-19 than democracies. Hmm. That is uh, that is a really important point. Um, and, uh, you know, when you think about what allows a system to go, it is that free flow of information that enables a government to respond and to respond in kind with its people because the people are confident in that response um, and trust that government that really allows that response to, to take its full effect. So toward that end, um, you know, a lot of folks have said that uh, the United States under this leadership is is falling back into uh, authoritarian tendencies. Um, if you could change a couple of things about the U.S. response, what would it be? And how would that uh, play to what you found in, in your studies? I can jump in there just to dovetail on what we were just talking about, which is a stronger reliance on facts and on science by, you know, by the leadership and by the administration and having that constant communication and honesty with the public. I think that goes a long way in behavioral response. Um, and as we've seen in other leaders around the world, whether it's from Jacinda Ardern or Angela Merkel or others, an ability to clearly communicate with the public um, and also coordinate in decentralized system, coordinate with regional governments, state governments and others to really have that leadership of, at the top and be able to implement policy at a local level. Hmm. I, I want to ask you, um, what were you most surprised about in your analysis? What was um, the thing that jumped out at you that you, you didn't expect to find uh, as, as you did this work? I mean, for us, I mean, we're not necessarily surprised by it, but I think many might. It's just how important policy is and how it really does seem to matter. Um, and I, we hinted at this before a little bit, but if you look at the three different scores that are in our index, um, and you put them together to tell a complete story about a country, you, you can see clear examples of places where um, weak capacities and strong policies actually produce pretty decent in-country status scores. So a Sen Senegal, for instance, not very rich beforehand, um, so not necessarily set up, but really strong policies that they implement, that makes a big difference, and they've done fairly well in terms of case, case rates, death rates spread. Um, you can also see countries that had strong capacities and maybe not the, the strongest policies and they result in, you know, good scores, but not great scores. So, you know, um, a lot of European countries obviously have very strong public health capacities beforehand, but they, they did suffer a lot of, uh, deaths and cases, um, mostly because they didn't implement maybe the, the, the level of different policies that they needed to. So it just, it's just striking I think to most most people who are going to come at this, you know, we think a lot of times people just assume that, you know, having a really strong healthcare system beforehand will will save you. Um, that's not what we're necessarily finding. It really does matter. So the commitments and investments that you make um, and the priorities that you put in terms of what your finances or revenues within a country go towards, that really does make a difference beforehand. But also, you know, the actual actions that you're taking in the middle of a crisis really make a difference. So I think that we see all different pieces of the puzzle mattering. But the, the policy story, I think, is 
you know, really a, a, a critical one to understand that you can overcome, uh, you know, some shortcomings that you have. You can overcome being a somewhat poor country if you prioritize and you think through things and make the commitment beforehand and then really engage strongly in a crisis to limit its spread. Yeah, I'm, I'm drawn by the point that you guys make about fact-based leadership, about uh, the, the, the thing about public health is that you're taking relatively drastic measures that can sometimes impinge upon uh, the traditional freedoms that people have to protect from the spread of a pandemic. And the only way you can do that and achieve the outcome that you want is if that you're clearly communicating about why you're doing it and about why people uh, really ought to obey the, uh, the, the, the orders that come down to protect all of us. And so that collective action really does have to be collective. And the only way that you can create a collective action is by empowering and inspiring people to do it because you've, you've given them the facts and you've been transparent. Um, and then also because you have protected them from the economic consequences uh, of that action. This this really is a illuminating study, and we're really grateful um, to you for for doing it, and then uh, for sharing it with us. And you know, we ask all our guests uh, on the podcast, um, how are you spending these very odd days? Uh, I mean, I can lead off. Uh, we have a newborn <laughs> not that long ago, so we got two. We got a, a, a two year old and a oh wow, and a, a four month old or almost four month old. So it's it's just sort of. The reality oh, of the crisis, you. it's its difficult. Like the decisions that we have to think about, you know, the everyday things. What do we do about daycare that's open? Is it safe? Is it not safe? Um, and just sort of handling that, trying to stay safe and trying to get this work done. I mean, it's just, this is, you know, um, really critical uh, data and analysis that we're putting out there that, you know, we hope is helpful and provides lessons to policymakers and and the broad public in general to try to understand what best practices are. So like, I don't know, for me, it's just been, we've been, uh, our team has been working around the clock uh, to to work on this uh, from the data side, from the policy side, graphics, everything. So it's been, uh, it's been a lot going on. Um, But, you know, just grateful to to have an opportunity to, to, to be part of something like this where we're able to hopefully make a difference and, 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 um, and provide some insight, you know, and, and for, for me personally, it's, it's really critical. I got two, you know, we've got two little kids here and, and we're trying to, we're trying to keep everyone, keep them safe. And, you know, you know, like you're saying, although like we, we're lucky, we're able to, to work with zoom and stuff like that. And a lot of people aren't, um, in America and other countries across the world, it's a really dangerous situation. And, um, it's it's really vital for everyone to you know do their best that they can to try to um, mitigate the challenges from this crisis because people's lives are depending on it. Mm, appreciate that perspective, Allison. How about you? Yeah, absolutely. And to just dovetail on what Fawad was saying, you know, it's clearly affecting all of us in our lives so intimately and on a day to day basis with our families, with our friends, um, and with our work. And you know, we're all trying to figure out how to grapple with this personally, professionally, and otherwise. And, you know, being part of this project has also been incredibly insightful for me and I think for us. And just want to also give a shout out to those who have contributed to the project because there are so many people that are working on various aspects of this collective challenge. You know, going back to your comment previously about how this is a collective effort, and we all need to be figuring out ways to understand what's happening more clearly, 
systematically and what we can do to contribute to action to combat it. And, you know, there are so many efforts out there from Oxford and from others and input that we've received and guidance from epidemiologists and public health experts to figure out ways to really hone in on the factors that matter. And so I just like to thank them for the contribution to our effort. And, you know, we consider this to be a living project of sorts that will continue to refine and add to and update going forward and, you know, commend you too. And thank you for the work that you're doing to elevate and amplify this issue and bring different voices to the table to figure out the, you know, the best or, you know, the best as far as we know it path forward. Well, it's, it's work all of us need to do. It is a truly life and death uh, issue. And it is also an issue that um, will dictate uh, the direction our societies go. Uh, so thank you for your leadership, both of you. And uh, I hope that you all stay safe. And Fouad, I hope that, um, that uh, both your, your, you and your family stay safe. And of course, you get some sleep because a four-month-old <laughs> is, um, that's no joke. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you guys again. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks so much. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. Kenosha, Wisconsin is the latest community rocked by police violence against an unarmed black man after Jacob Blake was shot seven times in the back by police officers. Two days later, a white supremacist armed with a weapon of war shot two peaceful protesters. As if on cue to stoke the flames further, President Trump is planning to go to Kenosha today, despite a request from Wisconsin's Governor Tim Evers not to come. Sadly, the violence spread further to Portland this weekend after a caravan of Trump supporters rode through downtown Portland to provoke demonstrators at Black Lives Matter protests, some spraying mace from the beds of pickup trucks. One of the Trump supporters was shot and killed. What does this have to do with COVID? From the jump, this pandemic has had its worst impacts in black and brown communities, and the ire we've seen against interventions to stop the pandemic spread, whether masks or lockdowns, has disproportionately come from white people in communities that have been least affected. Just a few weeks back, a road commissioner from a rural county in Michigan was asked about why he wasn't wearing a mask before a meeting. In his response, he used a racial slur I'm not going to say here. He said this whole thing is because of them down in Detroit. We have to understand that collective action is collective. Any force in society that divides people, like the President of the United States himself, necessarily makes it harder for us as a society to act in our collective interest. But we've also got to follow the science, and right now, we're failing that miserably. This week, the CDC changed its testing guidance. The change igniting confusion among public health experts. Um, That's an essential component of case-based interventions, doing effective tracking and tracing. New York's governor calling the move indefensible. This isn't just inconsistent with the science. This is against the science. We understand now that the novel coronavirus is often spread by asymptomatic or presymptomatic people. Some estimates put the proportion of spread as high as 40%. Curtailing the spread means we have to know which of these asymptomatic or presymptomatic people could be spreading the disease, because by definition, they don't have symptoms. The only way to do it is through testing. So why did the guidance change? So I said to my people, slow the testing down, please. Why would the Trump administration pressure the CDC to change these guidelines? Because since the COVID-19 pandemic started, the ineptitude of this administration has kept it from doing even the most basic things right, like testing. By recommending against testing asymptomatic people, they can now say they are meeting all CDC-recommended testing. Rather than expand testing to meet the need, they're redefining need to meet the testing. And all this hot garbage is why you need to sign up for Vote Save America, where you can adopt the critical swing state to help beat Donald Trump. Adopt Michigan. 
because we vote this autumn and nobody has a lovelier autumn. Go to votesaveamerica.com slash Michigan to sign up. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Allison Falzetta. The theme song is by Takea Suzawa and Alex Sugiera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geismer. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. Thanks for listening. 